I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue to read chronologically through the Old Testament, we've, of course, been reading in Second Kings and Second Chronicles. During the reigns of um, Jotham of Judah and Ahaz and Hezekiah, now, along this same time, of course, Isaiah was prophesying, and so we've been looking at Isaiah's prophecies as they apply in the historical context. We looked at Amos, of course, he prophesied during this time as well. And today we're going to look at another contemporary prophet, Micah. According to Micah chapter 1, verse 1, Micah prophesied during the lifetimes of three kings of Judah, Jotham from 750 to 731, Ahaz, 735 to 715, and Hezekiah, 715 to 686. Uh, Micah prophesied against the sins prevalent in Israel and Judah in his day. That's about the same time as I mentioned earlier as Isaiah. His hometown was south of Jerusalem in Judah. Now let's begin reading today with Micah chapter 1, verse 1, regarding the coming destruction. The word of the Lord came to Micah, the Morishite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down, and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria as an heap of the field, and as plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with fire, and all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of an harlot, and they shall return to the hire of an harlot. Therefore I will wail and howl, I will go stripped and naked, I will make a wailing like the dragons, and mourning as the owls. For her wound is incurable, for it is come unto Judah, he is come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Declare ye it not at Goth, weep ye not at all. In the house of Aphra, roll thyself in the dust. Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Sapher. Having thy shame naked, the inhabitant of Zaanon, came not forth in the morning of Beth-Ezel. He shall receive of you his standing. For the inhabitant of Meroth waited carefully for good, but evil came down from the Lord unto the gate of Jerusalem. O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Therefore shalt thou give presents to Moreshethgoth, the houses of Achzab, shall be allied to the kings of Israel. Yet will I bring an Aaron to thee, O inhabitant of Maresha, 
He shall come into Adullam, the glory of Israel. Make thee bald, and pull thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle, for they are gone into captivity from thee. As a contemporary of Isaiah, here's the same song with a different tune, so to speak. This chapter is written as Hebrew poetry. It's the familiar prophetic theme declaring that, because of the sin of heathen worship, Israel and Judah were going to fall into captivity. Verse 5 here clearly identifies the northern and southern kingdoms by naming their capital cities Samaria and Jerusalem. In addition to being poetic, there is a considerable play on words with the cities mentioned at the end of the chapter. For example, the city named Safer also means beautiful, and the city named Zaanon means to come out. If you read those verses with those substitutes, you see the pun intended by Micah in this poetic prophecy. You'll recall that Israel's turning away from God happened immediately after Solomon's death, right from their beginning. Judah had periods of worshiping the one true God, but Israel never did. Israel fell to the Assyrians in 721-722 B.C., and that was during the reign of King Hosea of Israel, recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17. And virtually all of Judah fell shortly afterwards. Jerusalem itself, however, managed to hold out through the Assyrian assaults, finally falling to not the Assyrians, but the Babylonians in 586 B.C., which is recorded in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25. Micah's prophecy specifically mentions certain cities in Israel and Judah, those cities that would experience the Assyrian assault. The list of cities is not meant to be comprehensive. They probably had particular significance to contemporaries of Micah that we just don't really know anything about now. Now to Micah chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it, because it is in the power of their hand. And they covert fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away, so they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil, from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. In that day shall one take up a parable against you, and lament with a doleful lamentation, and say, We be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. So, what do you think about when you can't sleep at night? Well, verse 1 here indicates that the inhabitants of Israel and Judah thought about the evil that they could do the next day. Then, on that next day, they'd get up and do that evil that they'd schemed in their beds the night before. The influential people of Israel and Judah were wicked, and they determined to practice that wickedness. Now, that's bad. However, their evil will be chastised by the Lord in that day. The reference to that day points to the fall of Israel and Judah to the Assyrians in this passage. Then you have those pesky false prophets. We see them beginning in chapter 2, verse 6. Prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy, they shall not prophesy to them, that they shall not take shame. O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord straightened? 
Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? Even of late my people has risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children have ye taken away my glory forever. Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted. It shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. Well, in this passage, we see that God's true prophets understood the sin of God's people, and they understood that to be their heathen worship, the heathen worship of the people. They warned of destruction for the lack of repentance toward God. The false prophets prophesied prosperity. Regardless of the people's spiritual condition, they were simply people pleasers. Notice what it says in verse 11. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. I mean, let's face it. The people didn't want doom and gloom prophecies. Their favorite prophets were those prophets who prophesied good times ahead. So then we have some words in Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, which we're going to look at and determine whether they are messianic words or not. Verse 12. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. Now verses 12 and 13 here indicate a return to the land by a remnant after the fall prophesied in chapter 1. Now here's the big question. Is this the return of the exiles to Israel from Babylon that started in 535 B.C.? Or is it a reference to the millennium when the Messiah shall reign over the entire earth? Judging from the balance of Micah's prophecy, the millennium, well, it must be in view here in this prophecy. Micah clearly prophesies the presence of the Messiah, who, by the way, didn't appear in 535 B.C. But he will appear, and he will reign during the millennium. So here's the prophecy of these two verses. One day after they have fallen, Israel and Judah will be restored again under their king. Now here's the messianic promise in these two verses. When Micah says in verse 12, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. As indicated, however, this doesn't really happen until the yet future millennium. To many students of Bible prophecy, verse 12 ties in nicely with Matthew chapter 24, verses 16 through 20. Here's the deal. If Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, if that passage addresses the movement of God's remnant leading up to the millennium, then we have a geographic location which we can deal with here. Notice the wording of verse 12. It says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra. Remember that name as the flock in the midst of their fold, 
they shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. Now let me put this together for you. In Jesus' Olivet Discourse, he refers to Daniel's abomination of desolation. And he does that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Now here's what we know about that. We know from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, that this event, the abomination of desolation, takes place at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the seven-year tribulation period. Assuming Matthew chapter 24 to be chronological, in chronological order, and I'm convinced that it is, then Matthew chapter 24, verses 16 through 20, that's addressed to the people who see the abomination of desolation spoken of in verse 15. And they are commanded then in verse 16 the following, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. So here's the question, to which mountains do they flee? Well, how about to the mountainous region of Old Edom on the east side of the Dead Sea to a place called Basra, as indicated here in Micah chapter 2, verse 12? Well, now you can see how it's not difficult to speculate that the place where the remnant will flee from the beast, the Antichrist, as he's commonly called, for those last three and a half years of the tribulation will be to Basra, the Basra of Micah chapter 2, verse 12. This flight into the wilderness is also described in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, where it says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now that period of three and a half years described in this passage, in Revelation 12, 6, well, that fits nicely into the second half of the tribulation, framed between the abomination of desolation at the middle and the second coming of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19:11 through 21 at the end. But wait, there's yet another support for this premise, and it's Daniel chapter 11, verse 41, where there we're told that the reach of the beast will not include this particular area. Incidentally, the capital city of Edom was Selah. The Hebrew word Selah is also translated rock in English or Petra in Greek. Therefore, the Greeks called the capital city of Edom Petra. We're told they did. It was apparently named after the fact that it's a city which stands in the clefts of the rock. For that reason, many think that the phrase, the clefts of the rock, found in Obadiah, verse 3, they think that's really a reference to Edom's capital city, Petra. I mention this because of a prophecy theory that one might hear, stating that Petra and Edom, which is, by the way, near Basra, will also become the fortress for the fleeing saints during the tribulation period. Now, I'll admit that that's based upon very thin scriptural evidence, but all I can say is, well, maybe... And that brings us to Micah chapter 3. Some bad leaders and some bad prophets. Verse 1. And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know judgment? Who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them, and their flesh from off their bones? Who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot and as flesh within the cauldron. Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. 
He will even hide his face from them at that time, as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry, Peace, and he that putteth not into their mouths. They even prepare war against him. Therefore night shall be unto you, that ye shall not have a vision, and it shall be darkened to you, that ye shall not divine. And the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of judgment, and of might, to declare unto Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob, and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment, and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord, and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house is the high places of the forest. Micah's prophecy takes off these verses on these bad leaders of Israel and Judah and their prophets. As I said, they prophesied prosperity, but falsely so. So why'd they do it? Well, it's for the same reason so many people get off track with God today. As a wise friend of the ministry is noted for saying in such matters, it's not the money, it's the money. In other words, he's noted over the years that while people will justify their actions with spiritual-sounding rhetoric, very often their actions are motivated by perspective, well, prosperity. Sure enough, there it is in verse 11, the money. It says this, The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. By the way, verse 12 once again states the consequences of their godless actions, and that's destruction. We should also take note of another verse in this chapter. About 100 years later, this verse would rescue Jeremiah from execution by his own people. Notice Micah's prophecy that Jerusalem would be destroyed in verse 12 when it says, Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. When Jeremiah was on trial, in Jeremiah chapter 26, for saying such things, one of the elders of Jeremiah's day makes reference to the fact that Micah had made the same prophecy during the days of Hezekiah. He hadn't been executed for making such a prophecy. As a result of this reasoning, Jeremiah was permitted to live. In that sense, it's obvious that this prophecy extends beyond the assault of the Assyrians all the way down to the Babylonian onslaught, which began in 605 B.C., and continuing until Jerusalem's demise in 586 B.C. And that's recorded in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25. In Micah chapter 4, we see restoration conditions, verse 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, 
and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God for ever and ever. In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that hateth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail, for now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves unto the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth." In this chapter 4, we see an outline of the restoration conditions under the Messiah. The Lord will rule and peace will prevail. Now, verse 5 seems a little bit confusing, but actually contrasts a now and then condition. In other words, now nations walk after their own gods, but then we'll all walk after the one Lord. The insertion of the word will before walk may create an impression that Micah is indicating that the other gods might be served at that time as well. But the Hebrew stem and tense for walk, which is a cow imperfect in the Hebrew, actually may also be understood to be this now and then contrast, in other words, before and after the Messianic rule. Let me make this clear. No other gods will be served during the millennium, just Jesus as the Messiah. He goes on to say that now they face captivity, but then restoration to God's kingdom. This process is compared to a woman in labor in verse 10. Pain is followed by satisfaction and joy in the process of labor. The question arises, what was the time frame in which Micah thought this restoration would happen? Well, a distinction is in order here. While the exiles from the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations did begin returning in 535 B.C. to their land, the Messianic rule, which is yet future, it didn't materialize at that time. 
Micah's prophecy looks forward to the return to the land and, by the way, the rule of the Messiah over the earth. So let's recap this chapter by listing the characteristics found in this passage with regard to the millennium. We see in verse 1 that Jerusalem will be established above all the cities. We see in verse 2 that the law will come from Jerusalem. Also in verse 2, the other nations will be under this law. In verse 3, strong foreign nations will be put down. In verse 3, also weapons will be eliminated. In verse 4, we see that there will be no fear of predators. And in verse 5, all will serve the name of Jehovah. And finally, in verse 7, the Lord will reign forever. Now, it should be noted here that while the millennium lasts a thousand years, the rule of the Messiah over the new heaven and the new earth extends into eternity, beginning after the final destruction of Satan, which is seen in Revelation chapter 20. Now, if you'd like to see other passages which set out the millennial conditions, then uh, I have links on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. But let me just tell you that those are Isaiah 2, 11, 60, chapters 65 and 66, Ezekiel 34, and Revelation 20. Micah lists some other conditions in chapter 5, verses 7 through 15, which we'll look at in a few moments. Then we see a deliverer from Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rock upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. Now, King David was born in Bethlehem, and it's prophesied in this passage that the Messiah will also be born there. Now, we know that Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. He'll be the deliverer of Israel. The epitome of Israel's enemies in Micah's day was Assyria. Assyria is thus used as the symbol of the godless nations who, then and in the future, stand against Israel and Judah. They get a figurative mention in verse 6 along with the poster child of bad men, Nimrod. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is the verse that caused all the uproar when Herod became concerned at the request of the wise men. When they asked in Matthew chapter 2 verse 2 the following, they said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Herod thought, Hey! I'm the king of the Jews. He then gathered all the chief priests and scribes to get some answers about the birth of Jesus. When Herod demanded of them where Christ should be born, they answered him over in Matthew chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what they said. 
in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet. Their answer in Matthew chapter 2 verse 5 came directly from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. The remnant is delivered then in Micah chapter 5 verses 7 through 15. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off the cities of thy land, and throw down all thy strongholds. And I will cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee. And thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. And I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee, so will I destroy thy cities." And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. We see here that just as the other prophets referred to the remnant of Israel who would fear the one true God, here they are again. We now know that this remnant will consist of those who are saved at the end of the tribulation, and those are the people that move right on into the millennium. The millennium starts out with all saved people on the earth. The unsaved are removed from the earth at the end of the tribulation. There will be no worship of false gods or idols during that time. Incidentally, the reference to groves in verse 14 in the King James Version comes from the Hebrew word Asherah. And that literally means the uh, goddess Asherah, A-S-H-E-R-A-H. It's really a transliteration and uh, the King James Version translates it groves because, uh, well, because uh, the worship of the goddess Asherah was erected, the idol was erected in a grove. That was the proper name, by the way, of the Canaanite goddess Asherah. If you're interested in additional study on the tribulation and millennium, then go look at uh, the notes that I've written on Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and uh, I think you'll find uh, all your answers that you'd like to have with regard to those periods of time in the future. Now, we find additional conditions during the millennium in these verses. We see in verses 7 and 8 that the Jews will be in the midst of the Gentiles as a favored race. In uh, verses 8 through 11 and verse 15, all of Israel's enemies will have been cut off at that time. We see in verse 12 that no more practicing of witchcraft or soothsaying will take place. Uh, in verse 12, and then uh, in verses 13 and 14, no freedom of religion. That brings us to Micah chapter 6. Micah gets back to the sinfulness of Israel and Judah in this passage. Verse 1, Hear ye now what the Lord saith, Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. 
O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answering him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The Lord's voice crieth into the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Are they yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? and the scant measure that is abominable? Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore also will I make thee sick in smiting thee, and making thee desolate because of thy sins. Thou shalt eat, but not be satisfied, and thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee, and thou shalt take hold, but shall not deliver. And that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil. And sweet wine, but shalt not drink wine. For the statue of Amri are kept, and all the works of the house of Ahab. And ye walk in their counsels, that I should make thee a desolation. And the inhabitants thereof and hissing, therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. Well, there's a clear indictment of Israel and Judah in this passage for their sin. He recalls Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage under the leadership of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam in verse 4. Then he mentions in verse 5 the Balaam episode of Numbers chapters 22 through 25. You'll recall that Balaam was not able to curse Israel at the request of Balak because of Israel's righteousness before God. Well, that was then, this is now. Now Israel's up to their eyeballs in sin. Beginning in verse 6, Micah responds on behalf of his nation. Their sacrifices, while continuing in their sin, are worthless before God. The rest of the chapter guarantees God's judgment because of unrepented sin. Notice God's desire for Israel, Judah, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Down through verse 12, he lists some of the sins of the people. Then, the judgment of God upon them, it's seen in verses 13 through 15. They're walking after the wicked ways of King Amri. He's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. And by the way, his wicked son, King Ahab, who set a record for wickedness in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 34. These were kings of Israel about a hundred years earlier, wicked kings. And that brings us to the last chapter, the book of Micah, Micah chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the great gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. 
The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among them. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for reward. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of the watchman in thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father. The daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the Lord of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall. I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. In that day thy walls are to be built. In that day shall the decree be far removed. In that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria, and from the fortified cities, and from the fortress even to the river, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein, for the fruit of their doings. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old." According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt will I show unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God likened to thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger for ever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again, he will have compassion upon us, he will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob, and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old." These first six verses contain a message from Micah regarding his dismay at the sin of Israel and Judah and the fact that no one stands with him for the Lord. Micah gives some specific instances of Israel's gross misconduct. Micah declares in verse 7, Therefore I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Beginning in verse 8 and down through the end of the chapter, Micah talks about the restoration of Israel one day to God and to their land. The tone of the return here points toward the yet future millennium rather than the return of Israel under the Persians in 535 B.C. We talked about, about that earlier um, in the uh, passage reading today. So, if Israel's so wicked, 
why would God bother with these promises of restoration? Well, the answer is simple. It's to be found in verse 20. It says, Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Here it is. It's all because of God's promise to Abraham. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant. And if you'd like to know more about the Abrahamic covenant, then there's a link right here at the end of today's reading. You can click there, or you can look at the article entitled The Abrahamic Covenant under the topic section of BibleTrack.org on the main page of BibleTrack.org. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.BibleTrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.